Hello and welcome to episode 12 of Cool Time Life, being released Monday, April 10th, 2017. More than a century has elapsed since the development of the first horseless carriages, and during that time, automotive power has risen from 12 horsepower inside a 1904 Daria Phaeton to 762 horsepower in the battery-powered Tesla S, and even 1200 horsepower in the Bugatti Viron. James Bond's beautiful Aston Martin DB5 was considered a supercar in 1962, but now can easily be outpaced by a well-tuned Honda. But as speed has increased, so has it decreased. Although the available horsepower in a typical family car has increased 20-fold, people are not able to travel 20 times faster. For although cars themselves are capable of a great deal more speed, they seldom get to exercise this ability on major streets and highways, not due to any physical fault of the car, but due to congestion, caused most often by poor driving habits of aggressive, speed-obsessed drivers and lane hoppers. In China, where the desire for personal advancement has itself taken a great leap forward, 30,000 new cars are being added to the streets of Beijing every month. That's 1,000 more cars every single day. The traditional bicycle, ironically, does maintain its role as the fastest and most efficient way around town in many situations. But regardless of the country, this rush-hour paradox that faster cars but slower traveling is a classic example of what happens when people think about speed rather than efficiency. There have been many studies performed over the years to identify whether aggressive lane hoppers really benefit from constantly switching lanes when driving in congested traffic. It's a concept called roadway illusion, which makes the other lanes on a congested roadway appear to be moving faster than the lane that you are in, even if both lanes have the same average speed. These findings repeatedly show that unless there is an actual lane obstruction like an accident, no lane is faster than any other during high volume rush hour traffic. It appears to a frustrated driver that the cars and trucks in the other lanes are moving more quickly. But this is because most observers only really take note of such vehicular injustices when they themselves are being passed, and they are not so likely to see them when their own lane temporarily becomes the faster one. In addition, cars that pass an observer do tend to remain in the field of view up ahead, much longer than those that have been passed in the rearview mirror. Other traffic studies have shown that the slowdowns and bunch-ups that are commonplace during rush hour are caused, more often than not, by erratic acceleration and braking patterns rather than actual accidents. One car picks up speed, for example, and then is forced to brake as the traffic ahead slows. The driver of the car behind then often tends to overbrake in order to allow for additional stopping distance, and this creates a ripple effect which quickly extends many miles backwards through the traffic, creating the slowdowns that seem to have no obvious cause. What would be truly amazing, and probably only just a few years away now, will be a lane dedicated to cars that can talk to each other. Not necessarily self-driving, but at least able to maintain a safe distance that eliminates erratic braking. It should be possible for a long line of cars to cruise at 55 miles an hour, just 6 inches apart, guided by computers. That would be a true fast lane, and I'm pretty sure it's coming. But for the time being, our own research into discovering the existence of a truly faster lane has led us to conclude that on a congested road, the best lane to remain in is the outside lane, the one everyone merges into and exits from. This is primarily because as soon as the other drivers merge in, they quickly switch to the middle or inside lanes, expecting them to be faster. So even though the outside lane handles more cars, it quickly disperses them. 
As a result, the best advice for getting somewhere quickly in coolie and congested traffic is to aim for the slow lane, because it is the quickest. Now, this relationship between cars, speed, and traffic jams highlights by extension the high-speed mode of thinking that causes problems in other areas of life. Delays cause stress, primarily because any stoppage becomes an impediment between where a person is and where they would rather be. Life has conditioned us into a mindset that runs event to event. People plan their days and they fill their agendas as if they knew or hoped that they had access to a transporter room, Star Trek style. Meetings. The problem is that they run less than optimally, but they're also booked extremely close together. This is because the people doing the planning, as well as the participants, are trapped into thinking event to event and meeting to meeting. How many times have you had to deal with a schedule full of back-to-back -back meetings? How often have you attended a conference in which the second event starts late because the opening address ran overly long past the scheduled time? People tend to schedule things according to the old notion that one event must follow the other in close succession, since they feel that gaps of wasted time are evil. I'm going to challenge that. Certainly, gaps of wasted time are not what people want in a day, but gaps need not be wasteful. In fact, they can make the difference between a reasonably productive day and a fully productive day. Meetings, activities, or events that run back-to-back, -back, for example, are physically and mentally exhausting. Late starts impact the quality of the information to be delivered, and late wrap-ups impact subsequent events. Often, it is the breaks that are sacrificed, which further threatens the success of the entire occasion. These kinds of difficult days offer no opportunity to regroup, refresh, and prepare, which results in participants whose mental abilities become distressingly low. How many different types of event-to-event -event situations can you identify in your day? What about getting up in the morning, getting yourself and your family out of the house and on their way? How about your commute in, your morning meetings, your travel itinerary? What about back-to-back -back phone calls or ad hoc requests for your time in an already busy day? There are so many situations in which we force ourselves into an event-to-event -event mindset. And as each task block butts up against the one before it, we start to suffocate intellectually, and the blur thickens. I'm always amazed at the number of people who tell me they work through lunch. It's easy to see why there is so much to do. No matter how much gets done, there will always be a reason to do more, and event-to-event -event thinking creates the expectation that work must continue, no matter what. Personal time is so easy to sacrifice. After all, what value could it possibly have compared to that of doing more work? Personal time is intangible and subjective, and therefore easily becomes secondary to work in terms of its significance. Personal time is not as definite or as firm as a scheduled event such as a meeting or a conference call. Consequently, when you meet someone in the elevator or a kitchenette carrying his lunch back to his desk, you think little of it. It's normal. It's expected. But lunch should not be considered a self-indulgent act. What if individuals and teams could be educated towards the idea that slowing down and taking a few minutes away from work actually increased productivity during the afternoon? What if people were able to see how taking a break from work for just 15 or 20 minutes to eat a healthy lunch, not fast food, a healthy lunch, not only replenishes the body with vital nutrients for the afternoon, but it also gives each employee's creative mind a chance to step away from the momentum of the tasks at hand and refocus and recondense the energies that go into delivering quality. That might mean something, that rest actually pays off. 
A short midday lunch also bolsters the metabolism in two very important ways. First, it energizes your body against the dreaded mid-afternoon trough, which is a period that occurs roughly around 2.30 p.m. and lasts around 30 minutes to an hour. For 9 out of 10 people, tasks become much harder at this time. The brain becomes a little more sluggish and the body becomes a little sleepier as it wants to try and take an afternoon nap. This physical depression is due to our inbuilt 12-hour echoing of the deep sleep period of the night before, around 2.30 a.m., but it can be lessened substantially by eating the right types of food at the right pace. This means taking both lunch at lunchtime and by snacking on healthy foods throughout the day. Taking time to eat and eating the right types of food helps to level out your metabolism and maintains energy throughout the entire day, while simultaneously bolstering the immune system against colds and infection. This is profound. It has direct economic value as follows. By simply slowing down enough to eat a small lunch and thereby minimizing the afternoon energy trough, each of your staff members or colleagues stands to gain one hour of extra productivity per day. Now, if you have eight people on your team, this simple technique will win you back one person day each week, eight hours. By assisting your people to fight off colds and other infections, you will also cut back on both absenteeism and presenteeism, adding hundreds of more fully productive person hours per year. Not to mention that studies have shown that eating over the keyboard is a health hazard, pure and simple. It has been proven that a computer keyboard and mouse, being locations that are constantly touched after having touched other common surfaces, contain a hundred times more bacteria on their surfaces than nooks and crannies than a kitchen table and 400 times more than a toilet seat. Consequently, you might be able to squeeze 15 minutes more out of the day by working through lunch, taking a bite of your sandwich, then working a little bit more on your computer, taking another bite. But when you have to spend the next few days sick at home as an absentee or sick at work, a condition called presenteeism, all the tasks from the simplest phone calls to the most challenging knowledge work will take at least twice as long. If you're enjoying this podcast and you think it's bringing you some value, I invite you to consider perhaps sending us a small donation of maybe $1, maybe $2, or even $5 to help us offset our production costs and continue on. All the details are at steveprentice.com slash podcast. You can find the secure PayPal button right there. Back to cars. Haggerty Classic Insurance, a provider of classic car insurance, used data from the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration to identify the 10 most dangerous foods to eat while driving, since up to this point, this was largely unavailable to insurance companies. Even though I personally would have thought that it would have been lobster, they discovered that the two biggest offenders are chocolate and coffee. You are most likely to spill or burn yourself with coffee, and chocolate will most likely get you into a swerving situation or worse. Chocolate is sticky, it gets onto the steering wheel, and even worse things happen when it falls into your lap and starts to melt. With chocolate, it is not the eating that is dangerous, it's the cleaning up. And just by the way, the other eight members of Haggerty's top ten list are hot soup, tacos, chili, hamburgers, barbecued food, fried chicken, jelly-filled or cream-filled donuts, and soft drink. And none of these are particularly healthy, but they are awfully messy. And yes, when was the last time that you sanitized your steering wheel? But people do need to get where they are going, and as long as we live and think event to event, lunch on the road becomes like lunch over the keyboard, a space of negligible personal time that can be sacrificed in the name of keeping up. But here's something else to consider. Driving while eating robs the mind of its driving talents. 
The first to go are realistic, defensive assessments of braking distances, followed by acclimatizing to road change surfaces or obstacles, particularly in construction zones. Basically, it's distracted driving. Driving while eating further robs drivers of the ability to anticipate other drivers' actions. Reading a driver's body language in their car, which can help predict sudden lane changes, for example, or can help assess the safety of intersections in which other people are turning in front of you, running red and yellow lights, and pedestrians are starting to cross. I have spoken to many a road warrior who has learned, sometimes the hard way, that there is greater value in pulling over for 10 minutes to grab some lunch rather than eating it on the fly. Some of the comments that they shared with me are as follows. I find I eat slower if I stop driving. Then I don't get heartburn in the afternoon. I don't get so hungry so quickly if I eat slower and stop driving. It has helped me lose weight. It really cuts down on highway hypnosis. It gives me a chance to check my schedule. If I can call people and tell them what time they can expect me, then there's less waiting around for me. I can actually see more of my customers by calling them just after I eat my lunch. Sometimes I have to give my client a lift, sometimes even my boss. It's really embarrassing to invite someone into your car when all of the lunch stuff is still there. When I stop to eat, I can also make sure my car is presentable. And that means a lot in my business. And finally, it's just nice to get away for a while. I'm in my car with my music on. It just feels good. Later, I asked the person who made the statement about calling his customers what would happen if he realized his schedule was too tight and that he couldn't make all his appointments that day. And he answered, well, that has happened to me and it's not a problem. My customers like to know that I'm looking out for them. If I tell one of them that I can't see him today but that I'll be able to come by tomorrow, he's fine with that. He's busy, I'm busy, and we all know that. He is actually grateful for the call. It shows that I respect him and that he can balance his time accordingly. This is a great example of how high touch wins out over high speed. The customer stays happy. He or she feels well looked after. The road warrior is happy. He or she feels in control. Health is better since food is eaten more slowly and carefully, and it allows drivers to be in a better position to drive safety and still make all the commitments of the afternoon. So there you have it, our little podcast on driving and food and event-to-event thinking. You deserve time for yourself. Enjoy your food. Enjoy some relaxation. Put the meetings and the driving away for 15 minutes. This favor will pay you back many times over. If you have a comment about our little show or a question you would like answered in a future episode, please do let me know. You can drop me a line through the contact form on my webpage, which is steveprentice.com, S-T-E-V-E-P-R-E-N-T-I-C-E. You can follow me on Twitter through my full name, at Stephen Prentice, S-T-E-V-E-N-P-R-E-N-T-I-C-E. If you like this podcast, please consider subscribing via iTunes or Google, and please do leave me a review. Uh, the theme music for the show is from podcastthemes.com, and the show is sponsored by the Bristol Group, providers of time management, project management, and business communication training for our busy working world. So until next time, I'm Steve Prentice. Thanks for listening.